Hi, welcome back to The Horrors. Hi, I'm Elise. I'm Shay. And we're here with a scary movie today. This is a very scary movie. I know we don't normally do those. (laughs) No. (laughs) We never do those. This is one similar to Woman in Black and The Ring, which we haven't covered yet, but one day I'm sure we will, that my cousins wanted to watch. But this one, I put my foot down and I said, no, I will not watch this movie. I think for your past self's sake, that was the best move you could have made. I agree, because not only does it have a lot of jump scares, it's also very emotionally taxing as well. It feels like the perfect storm of all the things that make me just completely hate my life when I watch this movie. (laughs) I really do love the storytelling of this movie because there are certain things that are never said, but the way that things are shot, you can tell exactly what's happening, what's going on with this couple. I really was a lot more emotionally invested than I expected to be. I also think the fact that it's such a small cast, yeah, it adds such an interesting layer. Because you're right, you really do get to know the characters and see the storyline, especially between James and Kristen develop. And it's just the two of them. And it's just ugh, heart-wrenching. And these three antagonists are spooky. They are so spooky. The one is Man in the Mask, but I was calling him Mr. Sack because it looks like he's wearing a sack on his head. I was calling him Mask Man, but then I was abbreviating it to MM. And then I was thinking, oh, Michael Myers. But there are a lot of parallels between the two of them. Yeah, the standing and staring. The white mask. Yeah. The closet. And then his two accomplices, Dollface and Pinup Girl. And I think it's interesting that in this trio of killers, we have two girls and one guy. I absolutely loved that. I know that there's a sequel to this movie that came out in 2018. I'm wondering if we get more time learning the identities of these killers, what ends up happening there. But I think it's such an interesting dynamic. And I think it's supposed to be this little like nuclear family because you could tell the doll face is supposed to read a lot younger than pinup girl is. Mm. So it's almost like a mom, dad, daughter setup. Ew. And I think that's explored a little bit more in the 2018 one. I have not seen it, but I've heard really good things about it. Okay, well, let's get into this one. And then I'm sure one day we'll get to the sequel once I've emotionally healed. (laughs) Will I ever emotionally heal? Never. Never. Okay, so we'll start with our ladies in the film. I mentioned already our main lady, Kristen McKay. She's played by Liv Tyler. Liv Tyler is an American actress, producer, singer, and former model. She's most well known for her role in the Lord of the Rings trilogy. And she did win a Scream Award for Best Actress in a Horror Film for her role in this film. And the film itself also won a Scream Award for Best Horror Movie that year, among being nominated under several other film awards as well. So people noticed this movie when it came out. Also, we have Dollface. She is played by Gemma Ward. And then we have Pinup Girl, who is played by Laura Margolis. Getting into some pre-plot trivia, The Strangers is a 2008 American psychological horror film written and directed by Brian Bertino in his directorial debut and is the first installment of The Strangers film series. So like we said, there are now two. The most recent came out in 2018 called The Strangers Pray at Night, which I kind of love the pray to God that you live at night. Also, you are prey. Somebody's coming to get you. The double meaning there. Absolutely. The film was shot entirely with handheld cameras or steady cams, so every shot has some camera movement. Ooh, I love that. I love that too. It adds to that kind of voyeuristic feeling. The film was shot in chronological order, which I didn't realize that so many films were shot out of order 
until there's so many documentaries out about films and how they're shot. So to me, when I was a kid, it always made sense that you would just move chronologically, but that doesn't always make sense. But I like, especially in horror, when things move chronologically, because I wonder if it helps the actors kind of capitalize on their rising fear. And of course, the practicality of that, you know, as you keep messing up a house or getting an outfit bloody, you don't have to go back and get a new version of that. You can just kind of keep going with what you've been doing. Yeah, you saying that made me think of the 2013 Evil Dead because they also shot in chronological order because, yeah, they couldn't replicate the blood splashes in the same way. And I do think it's easier when you're on one location to do that and you can tell, like, this movie exists within this house, except for maybe, like, one or two flashbacks. The song Mama Tried, which is heard several times during the film, is a 1968 hit by Merle Haggard and The Strangers. Leo DiCaprio. And the score itself was nominated for Best Score in the Fangoria Chainsaw Awards. So let's get into it. We open with some text on a screen, which we know that you love. I adore text on a screen. So we read that this film was inspired by true events and something to the effect that there are 1.4 million violent crimes a year in America. Okay, this is probably one of them. It goes on to read, on the night of February 11th, 2005, Kristen McKay and James Hoyt left a friend's wedding reception and returned to the Hoyt family's summer home. The brutal events that took place there are still not entirely known. So after we get this text on a screen, we have shots fading in and out as if we're looking out from a moving vehicle. We're seeing some residential neighborhoods in and out. And slowly as these shots are changing, we see that night is falling. Then we hear a voiceover of a 911 call from some kid named Jordan. He is saying that he and his friend found some people in a house. There's blood everywhere. The 911 operator is trying to get some more detail out of the boy, but soon the call cuts to the title card. And then we see two people in a car driving at night who will soon be introduced as Kristen and James. Yeah, they're waiting at a red light, not speaking to each other. You can tell the woman has been crying just due to how her makeup looks. They pull up to a home and I wrote, I didn't know that you could angrily retrieve mail, but he does. (laughs) So angrily. He's getting out of the car, slamming the mailbox while she lights a cigarette. You could tell that there is a lot of tension occurring between this couple. He even walks inside the house without her and she seems nervous around him. But she does end up following him inside, closing the door behind them, and the record player goes on. And this record player is going to be the soundtrack of the movie, and the record player fucking up is going to be why this movie is so terrifying (laughs) a lot of the time. Yes. After this record player starts going, we get our first look at the house, and we can see that it is decorated with rose petals and candles ready to be lit upon their arrival. Kristen takes us in. She asks, when did you do this? James responds earlier that day with his friend Mike. We're getting the sense that maybe he was setting up a super romantic weekend. But as he responds to her question, he also says that she can have the room and he'll find somewhere else to sleep. So it's again confirming that they've gotten in not just a fight, but some kind of big fight where they can't even sleep in the same room at this point. Champagne Problems by Taylor Swift. Yes! Yes, it is, because we find out very soon that he proposed and she couldn't say yes. Yeah, it's a very awkward situation where they don't know where they stand with each other. Like, he's still helping her unzip her dress and undo her jewelry, but you can tell this intimate interaction is still too painful for him. And he walks away, buries his face in his hands, and calls his friend Mike to tell him, hey, I know you're probably not going to get this till the morning, but I need you to come get me. Things did not go the way I planned at all. 
just come get me in the morning when you wake up, please, because I want to leave her the car. So they're not even planning on leaving together. So it's a very awkward situation of they're obviously a couple that has no idea where they stand. If you're not engaged and the person says no, what are you? Exactly. Yeah. So then we get a flashback confirming that this was a denied engagement. They were at a wedding reception. James asks Kristen to come outside with him and then gets down on one knee and pulls out a ring box. He starts his speech saying he remembers the first time he saw her. And then, of course, the flashback fades away and leaves us back in the present where Kristen, crestfallen, on the landing. No, I'm just kidding. I'm <laughs> quoting Taylor Swift. Uh, Kristen has emerged from the bath. She puts her wedding reception dress back on and joins James. She says that the dress makes her feel pretty, which I think is an interesting choice to put her dress back on. Is she not ready to leave the moment? Is she afraid of what it means to put on her clothes and leave behind the moment? Anyway, I think it's an interesting choice. But she joins James in the living room. He insists that she should have the ring anyway, even though she denied his proposal. He says he can't take it back anyway, and she should have it. And he's also eating ice cream and drinking champagne. But he pours her a glass as well. Or actually, I think he just passes her the bottle. He passes the bottle, (laughs) yep. He's just like, we're both in pain, just take it. And I like that too. Like, even though we can see James is very much in pain, he's the one that got denied. I think we can still see him acknowledge that she's also in pain. And like you said, they just don't really know how to act. It's this tricky situation for them. She goes on to apologize. And he's like, well, what do we do now? She goes on to say, just not ready yet. And this, I think, is where he lets his pride get the best of him. He gets up to leave and says, well, this is just embarrassing for me. But we see that they have a tender interaction where she hugs him from behind. He changes the music record. They embrace. He says, you're still my girl or something. And they begin to have an intimate moment. They begin to undress and have sex when they hear a knock on the door. And this is like a bang or a thud. Right away, it's very intimidating. A glance at the clock shows that it's 4 a.m. So they go down the hall of this one-story house. They answer the door. And there's a girl standing there. We can tell like by her voice and her long hair, although we can't see her face at all. It's completely in silhouette from the backlighting from the street. The porch light is not working. And the girl asks for Tamara. Does Tamara live here? James answers, no. But Tia does. I'm kidding. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) You're kidding. You can have the other twin. Yep. But James answers, no, wrong house. There are these long bouts of silence that are really spooky. Again, we can't see her face. So finally, he is like, again, no, Tamara doesn't live here, shuts the door. She says, see you later. Yeah, so weird. And then they go back inside. And of course, the moment that was previously existing is completely ruined. So now they're back to just kind of coexisting in this house together. James says that he wants to go driving for a little bit, so he lights her a fire and tells her, listen, tomorrow Mike's going to come get me. You can take the car back because I don't think a road trip is a good idea right now. So this man had it planned, like propose, have this romantic night, go sightseeing, and now it's all obviously ruined. So he then drinks the rest of the champagne, tosses the bottle into the lawn, pulls the car out, and drives away. So Kristen, we have this montage of her like looking at the ring, trying it on, realizing it's too tight, not being able to take it back off. (laughs) She's drinking a beer and crying and wandering around the house. She looks at the height marks of James and his brothers on the wall. Like she's really just like taking in this somber moment. And then she hears a big bang outside. And as she approaches the door, there's even more banging. She calls hello through the door. To which she is met with the same voice from before asking, is Tamara home? 
Kristen responds, you already came by here. And the voice responds, are you sure? Which is such a weird response. Kristen doesn't answer. She just makes sure the door is locked, goes back into the living room. But something that I notice is, did you notice that the music has stopped? No, I didn't. So the music that she was listening to has stopped. I don't know. Is it because the record was over or is it because somebody stops the music? Suddenly she hears faint chimes from outside and she goes to inspect, but she sees that inside the fire that has been lit has started to smoke up the living room as if somebody has shut the flue to the chimney. So she goes to the fireplace and tries to figure that out, which is difficult because everything is hot and she is not ready to handle the situation. Of course, the smoke alarm starts going off. She tries to turn it off and knocks the smoke alarm to the floor. But then she is startled by more banging coming from outside. So there's more knocking at the door. It's obviously much more aggressive. She gets out her flip phone out of her duffel bag, but finds out that the battery is dead. So she plugs it into the wall as more knocking continues. You can tell she is freaked out at this point. So she grabs the landline, calls James. It's like, this girl came back. They keep knocking. I'm afraid. Can you please just come back? But then the line gets cut. She's wandering around the house, and I think this scene is probably the most iconic scene in the movie, where she's in the kitchen, she's like walking around, Mm. and we see in this wide panning shot that a man in a white mask steps into view and is watching her from the hallway, but she is not aware of him. And that scene just lingers with him standing there and taking some steps closer because originally you don't really see him. You see the light change, but then as he fades more into view, she's just wandering the kitchen and busying herself and she does not notice his presence there. As she turns and pours herself some water, he continues to watch her. And when the view changes back, he is not standing there anymore. I can't take it. (laughs) Well, I wrote that like this is very hush or hush is very this, I should say, Mm. because of Maddie. Obviously, we're given that character who is hard of hearing. This man is testing all these things and is like right at the sliding glass door and doing all these things. And she's completely unaware. And I was like, this is almost the same thing. She's just not sensing his presence. And that's such a good point that he is testing. He is testing and it is sowing again, this idea that there's some kind of sick delight in the game, the long game. Especially because then when she hears the next bang, she looks down and sees that the smoke detector is flipped right side up. I think it's sitting on a chair now. Yeah, so it's not where she left it, and it's flipped upside down. So somebody is in this house. And she's like, this isn't happening. But I'm like, yes, it is. (laughs) She is acknowledging that something is happening, right? Of course, she sees a smoke alarm sitting right side up. So she grabs a knife and slowly approaches the door. And she also realizes her phone is missing. She had left it on the charger, and now it's gone. There are more knocks at the door, more chimes outside. She approaches the drawn curtains of the sliding glass door and tries to look out. And then, of course, she sees the masked man standing on the other side of the sliding glass door. She lets out a scream. Just then, the record player behind her begins playing again, and the front door opens. There's a moment, like a brief, silent standoff, where we can see Kristen deciding what to do. She quickly approaches the door, shuts it, locks it, and then she quickly tries to hide under the bed in the downstairs hallway. She won't fit, though, which fucking sucks. (laughs) Because I think about that as an adult, like... There is not many beds you can fit under anymore as an adult. I can. (laughs) You bitch. (laughs) You tiny, tiny bitch. (laughs) I can't. I can't. And I haven't since I was like 13. Anyway, she can't. She has to figure that out. So she goes and just kind of sits against the wall. This is a very like invisible man moment where she just like sits against the wall and like watches the room. 
She hears the sound of it sounds like breaking and entering from down the hallway. She yells at whoever it is to go away. She realizes the light is on in the room that she's in. So she tries to turn it off. But in her panic, she just decides to smash it instead, cutting her hand in the process. And then suddenly she hears somebody coming down the hall and it's James. He has returned. He got her previous message that he needed to come home. She was scared. She begs him to just stay with her in the room, but he doesn't listen and he decides he's going to go inspect the house and show her that no one is there and that they're safe. Meanwhile, when they're in the living room, we see this shot and we can see that Kristen's phone is burning in the fireplace. So somebody has clearly put her phone in the fireplace to get rid of it. So they walk to the window together and they see the girl who asked if Tamara was home standing outside. And she's like, oh my God, she's watching us. And James is like, well, you want me to go talk to her? And she's like, no, I don't want you to go talk to her. They don't want to talk. I just can't get behind James's reactions. Like I can get behind Kristen's reactions. Everything Kristen has done so far, I've been like, this makes sense. Like I could see this being a very genuine reaction. Like first, maybe being in a little bit of disbelief, then grabbing the knife, then hiding, then getting frustrated and smashing the lamp, right? But James is I'm wondering like if he's trying to act this way to not upset Kristen even more because he can see she's so upset. Like, is he trying to downplay what's happening? Otherwise, there's no way he's actually this calm and offering to go talk to this random person at four in the morning. In my view, I think it comes down to he can't see a woman as a threat type of situation Mm -hmm. and he might think well if there is somebody if you did see a man in a mask like he might be after her like he brought her here you know Mm -hmm. what i mean like maybe she needs help like do you want me to go talk to her like i don't think that he can see a young blonde woman can be a threat james realizes he doesn't have his phone with him so he's like i'm gonna go get my phone from my car kristen's like don't do that (laughs) they already took mine And he's like, I'm going to go do it. You just stand guard at the door. So he goes outside and sees that his car has been destroyed. The windows are smashed in. There's glass everywhere. He cautiously approaches and leans inside. And I wrote, I have never felt more vulnerable than when I'm leaning inside my car. I don't know if that's like being socialized as a woman type thing, but I was taught to never like lean inside my car, like get inside my car and close the door, but never lean inside my car because I just feel very vulnerable. Mm -hmm. But he leans inside, gets inside. But then a hand reaches from the back seat and grabs at his neck. So, of course, he gets freaked out. But we see whoever it was scamper away into the brush. So he gets out, obviously spooked, and sees the girl standing at the end of the driveway again. So he calls to her, asks, what do you want? Get the fuck out of here. James continues to trail her as Kristen's like, James, can you please just come back inside? And he's like, no. (laughs) So he takes a knife and he walks toward where he sees her, hears some noises from the woods, gets spooked, and ends up coming back in the house. James tends to Kristen's hand and says, we're going to get out of here. I'm going to get you out of here. James looks down and then sees that his cell phone is sitting on the mantle, the one that he left in the car. And finally, he is on board with something spooky. Mm -hmm. We're leaving. Also, the battery is missing. So they decide to leave. Which again, this is like that trope. The man doesn't believe the woman until he can see some proof with his own eyes that something isn't right. This is the proof. Yeah, this is the proof. So they run outside, get into James's car, and as they're backing out of the driveway, a truck driven by... Is this the pinup girl? This is pinup girl. So the whole time I was calling the pinup girl dollface. Dollface is blonde. Yeah, but we don't see her face or her mask Yeah, I was about to say. This is your next two. There's a lot of masks to keep track of, and it's like, God damn it. Yes, and it's like... What is your alias? Tell me. Yes! I was like, who's the fox? And this is the same. I was like, I don't know who the pinup girl and the doll mask is. But anyway, this is pinup girl. 
She's driving the car. She smashes into the back of James's vehicle, totally fucking it up. So they scamper out of the car and then back into the house. I wrote, they evacuate the dance floor and go back inside and they start looking for a gun. James is like, my dad kept one here. He finds it hidden on top of a bookshelf. They go in search of some bullets. When they get into the bedroom to look for those bullets, they see hello written in what looks like lipstick or blood on the window. That's scary. That's weird. (laughs) That's suspicious. (laughs) That is something I noticed about this movie, though, is the use of hello and how that's often seen as, you know, a nice greeting or whatever like that. But in this movie, it's always like a nervous trepidation, Mm. checking and like calling and looking for a response. Even when she is on the radio later, it's always like, hello, like hello is used in a lot of different contexts. Mm. But in this case, it was what's meant to be like a nice greeting is obviously terrifying. So there's banging on the windows from outside as James looks for bullets in his closet. And I fucking laughed because as he's assembling the gun, he admits that he has no idea how to use it. Kristen's like, I thought you went hunting with your dad. And he's like, I never did. That's just something I said. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, oh, my God, I love the moment of honesty in the heat of danger. There's something about that. And also like learning something about your partner that you have taken to be a fact and then like your years into it. It's just like you actually don't know how to use a gun. (laughs) And you've been telling me this for however many years like you fucker. Wow. So downstairs, somebody tries to axe through the door. So thinking quickly, James and Kristen tried to move a bureau in front of the door. It's a piano because that comes back later. Oh, it's the piano? It's the piano. Because we see earlier Kristen playing with some of the keys on the piano. And then later Kristen's hiding and she hears noises on the piano, meaning someone's coming through the door. So it's a piano. The person keeps trying to act through the door. So James tries to shoot. I mean, this is a shotgun, by the way. So it like blows a hole into the small axe slots in the door. They're not sure if they hit anyone. So they go back into the master bedroom to kind of sit and wait. And then they hear some weird music start playing on the record. I wrote like two things about this scene. One, I love the ready or not progression of James's outfit changes throughout the night because he's in wedding attire, but then he takes off his tie to tie it around Kristen's hand wound and then he takes off his blazer to do something else and now he's rolling his sleeves up and tearing them up and I'm like, the wedding dress and ready or not, it's like the same thing. And they start playing country music and I was like, my nightmares too consist of country music (laughs) and men with guns. Anyway... This is happening at the same time as we cut to another scene of another car pulling up outside of the house. It is Mike, a.k.a. one of the guys from It's Always Sunny. Mm-hmm. He tries calling James and is like, yo, Jimmy James, I'm outside. You can tell he's a little drunk. I got your call and I came right away, man. I'm here for you. But as he's leaving this voicemail saying that he's outside waiting for him, his windshield gets smashed in by something. So he gets out and is like, what the fuck? He's looking around and hears this music bumping from inside the house. He initially starts calling for James and Kristen, but then arms himself with, is it the axe? Or he picks something up. I don't know what he picks up because the mask man ends up having the axe later. Is it a baseball bat? Something. He picks up something. Doesn't matter. He arms himself with something and then goes sleuthing through the house as one of the mask ladies appears from the darkness. I don't know if it's Dollface or Pinup Girl, but one of them it's, like I think it's Pinup Girl. Yeah. Emerges from the darkness showing that he's being watched. So inside, Mike is doing more inspecting. We see Mr. Sack come in, reprising that famous scene we saw with Kristen earlier, where we see him watching from behind. And it looks like he is going to get Mike. 
just then the song finally ends and Mike continues to advance forward. And I think that the masked man knows something that Mike doesn't, which is that James and Kristen are lying in wait in one of the bedrooms with a shotgun ready to shoot. Mike, of course, doesn't know this. So the man in the sack mask just watches as Mike continues down the hallway quietly. This is one of those times where it's like, I wish he would say hello. Exactly. I'm like, this is where you keep calling for them. Like, Uh James, Kristen, like, this is where you keep using your voice. But he's instead wandering around really (sighs) sleuthily. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, James sees somebody emerge in the doorway. He takes a shot. When he inspects, he realizes that he killed his best friend, Mike. Mike says hello right as he's (gasps) shot. Right as he's shot. And this is such a sad moment because right away, James is like, he wasn't wearing a mask. That guy wasn't wearing a mask. Why wasn't he wearing a mask? And then when he goes to inspect, he sees that it's Mike. And this is, oh God, this is just one of those moments where it's like, why does this have to happen? It's like the turning point for hope. It's like after this, it's very hard to recover any sense of hope left for this couple. But anyway, they're very upset. They share a tearful, painful moment. They then leave the bedroom or closet, wherever they just were. James reloads the gun and he's like, I'm going outside. There's an old radio in the barn, like 100 yards from the house. 100 (laughs) yards is always 100 yards. It's always 100 yards. And he's like, I'm going to get this old radio and I'm going to radio out for help. We got to get out of here. So he pulls back the curtain to leave the sliding glass door and sees killer written in blood. Oof, so sinister. And he says, Kristen, I'll be fine. And I just wrote, these bitches should not be flying solo. No. James is always trying to leave Kristen behind in the house. And if I was Kristen, I'd be like, the answer is no. I'm so sorry. We simply cannot be parted. Why would you leave me in this house? And it's already well established that this house is not safe. These people are coming in and out and in and out. It is compromised. It is has always been compromised. And now there's like holes in the door, blood on the glass. Like it's even more compromised. And James is just fine leaving her there. Like I don't see why he sees that as the safer option. And it drives me crazy. Part of me thinks, does he think it's a suicide mission? Does he think that they'll follow him out and Mm. will take the distraction off of her for a little bit because even when mike dies Kristen tries to look and he all but tackles her it's like don't look don't look it's like still protecting her i thought that scene was one of the most gut-wrenching in the sense that he's experiencing so much pain and even though he was rejected not but six hours earlier Mm -hmm. he's still being like you're my girl i don't want you to be traumatized i don't want you to see this she obviously ends up seeing it eventually but part of me thinks that he just wants to buy her time Mm -hmm. i don't know Or he's just doing man things. I don't know. (laughs) It could be one or the other. But it doesn't last very long because as James makes his way towards the barn, he sees one of the masks exiting the barn with a flashlight. I think it's Pinup Girl. Yes. As he begins to take aim at her, oh, I loved the sound effect on this. We hear footsteps fucking running up behind him and Mask Man fucking gets him from behind. Mm -hmm. A shot is fired, but we don't know what happens. So as Kristen hears this, she exits the house and is like watching the woods line, is like burying her face in her knees. And I'm like, this isn't what you're supposed to be doing because Mask Man then pops up, looks at her, is like, okay, you're not going to do shit and then walks away. (laughs) And then so weird. And then I don't know what prompts her to go sprinting into the woods. I guess she's like, I'm not staying here. Maybe she just couldn't wait any longer to see if James would emerge. Maybe she thought that he was dead since she hadn't heard anything from him at this point. So she's going to pull Amy in the ruins and just go sprinting for it. And by the way, she's also barefoot. The dogs are out. The dogs are out. They gotta be barking because she sprints into the woods. She injures herself. Of course, she fucking trips. 
hears like thudding all around here. And I really do like too that this movie uses the sound design to make you not aware of where the sound is coming from because whenever we're in Kristen's perspective, it's all around her. Like there's thudding, there's chiming, there's banging, there's knocking, and you can never tell from what direction. It's almost like she's trapped inside a cube and everyone's banging at the sides. And that's how this house feels to her. I said, girl's got the dogs out and thinks she can be doing all of this. <laughs> so she starts army crawling toward the barn with one of the masks trailing her close behind. Of course, she is unaware of this. I wrote, the lack of spatial awareness in this movie blows my mind because these people are always just there. Like, how do they always know? And like, how do you just not feel somebody looking at you? Maybe I'm paranoid? I don't know. I don't, maybe she just doesn't have time to be paranoid. Maybe she's like, this is what I have to do and we're going to do our best. She makes it to the barns, calling for James, and uses a flashlight to look around and eventually finds the radio. She fumbles with it, says hello. Again, the use of hello in this movie. So she's crying, asking if anyone can hear her, and she does get a response, but as she's getting some responses back, she's hearing clattering and thudding around her, and I wrote, the presence of continuous intentional noise when you're alone is terrifying. Mm. Like, think about being home alone and you just hear, like, a constant, like, bang, 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 or drip 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 like that's enough to fucking freak you out when you're home alone and i think that this movie creates that with just creating intentional noise like that's scary enough it's very scary and that's why we're like this movie in terms of its villains or in terms of its scares obviously isn't reaching the level of like gore or gruesomeness that we've seen but we've all been alone in a house before and Mm -hmm. been like I gotta take my iPhone flashlight and call my mom and like go looking around my closets for a little bit you know what i mean Mm because it just gets in your head So after all this kind of banging and thudding, you know, establishing that Kristen is not alone, we see pinup girl pop up from behind the radio, slow motion, smash the radio, completely obliterating any chance that Kristen could use the device to get a signal out. So Kristen then runs away back into the woods, trying to make it back to the house. But we can see through her perspective that obviously we know that pinup girl was just in the barn. We see the man in the sack mask staring down the house. And then we also see Dollface on a swing. So again, maintaining the sense that she is surrounded no matter what she does. As she makes it closer to the house, we see that Mike's car is on fire. So like she really is fucking screwed. Like if she was hoping she could use his car to get out, she definitely can't. She gets back inside. She knocks some shit over as she moves through the house. I was like making all of the fucking noise. She's so bad at being quiet. But she makes it to the bedroom and she sees that the window is totally smashed in. So again, this house is totally compromised. The fire from the burning car outside casts this like eerie glow inside the room. And then suddenly, I think this is what you were mentioning, we hear a a small piano run. So somebody is obviously inside the house. (laughs) Kristen turns to see that Mr. Sack has entered the house. Actually, she does this very quietly. So I take back what I said. She very quietly and stealthily moves into a slatted pantry in the kitchen. This is where I said it's very Halloween because of the slatted light and everything like that. So she hides as Mr. Sack stealthily moves around the kitchen. He sits down at the table in front of the ice cream uh, where we had just seen those early scenes of the movie unfold in this really eerie full circle moment. She watches from the window. He moves out of sight. Just when we think that he's leaving the area, we see bitch-ass Dollface pop up. Kristen lets out a scream. Dollface starts attacking the closet, like putting holes in the slats, like showing like, we know where you are. You're trapped in there. So Kristen's like, all right, I'm not doing very well being trapped in this very small space. So she exits. 
Then there's like a stare down. Yeah, there's a stare down because Dollface is looking at the knife she left on the table right next to the ring box and she's like spinning it around very childish like. And this is why I said it was almost like a family because prior to this, we see Dollface playing with the ring box, like opening it, looking for the ring. And even the way that she's holding it looks like a child would where she's just playing with it almost like it's a mouth or Mm -hmm. like the way she's turning it in her hands and she's spinning the knife on the table. Very juvenile. And as Dollface picks up the knife and starts dragging the knife toward her, James is then thrown in the room by Sackman, who is now holding the gun. Dollface just says, you're gonna die. So immediately, James starts yelling at Kristen to run. This, I think, definitely serves your theory. He's just trying to buy Kristen time. He's very much sacrificing himself in this moment as some kind of distraction. So maybe Kristen can get away. So she tries to run away. But then whatever window she gets to is somehow like locked or boarded. I don't know. She can't get out of some window she tries to move through. She's obviously rightfully so freaking out. We hear James yelling again for her to run, but Sackman appears, throws Kristen against the wall, temporarily knocking her out, and he starts slowly dragging her across the hallway floor back down to the living room where she comes to and screams and the scene blacks out. I did love how this scene looked too, because you can tell she's disoriented and you can tell that she's like having consciousness like every other second where she's trying to grab onto door frames or like drag her fingernails on the floor, but she's just so disoriented and so tired that she's like given up at this point and it's like hard to see. But then it's daylight. This is so scary. I knew that this scene would be hard for you. It's like you think that when daylight comes, you're in the clear. You're safe. They are not safe. This is where it gets so much worse. Can I also say how much I appreciate that this movie has a realistic timeline as far as the darkness? Like the sun has to rise at some point. Exactly. Like it starts at least at 4.30, 5 o'clock a.m. Yes. Like it makes sense that it gets light when it does and stays dark for as long as it does. Like I really appreciate that. (laughs) So even though this is terrifying, it does make sense that it's light out. Time exists. Yes. (laughs) So Kristen comes to, of course, in the daylight. She finds herself tied to a chair. She's back in her purple dress. Oh, I didn't notice this. Yes. So she had originally changed into flannels when she started getting freaked out in the beginning when James was out driving. But now she's changed back into her purple dress. And I think James is in a suit jacket again now I that think you say is. that. Mm-hmm. So they're, they're dressed back up. James is next to her, also tied to a chair. She asks the assailants again, why are you doing this to us? Dollface responds, because you were home. This is why you don't answer your door. I love not answering my door. I love not talking to people I don't know. I love not being perceived. (laughs) Yeah, me too. (laughs) So then, of course, Kristen and James look at each other. He sees that she's wearing her engagement ring. Then they tell each other that they love each other. Oh, this is the horror here. This is the emotional baggage. So slowly, all three assailants take off their masks. This is a bad sign because if they're taking off their masks and showing their faces, we know that they are not planning on leaving any survivors. So they take off their masks. We don't see their faces, but we see Kristen and James see their faces. They start killing James first. They stab him several times in the gut and chest slowly, like very much taking their time, like taking their turn. Yeah, every time they hand off the knife to someone Uh different to keep stabbing, it's ugh. And then they move on to Kristen. I do like how Kristen in this moment is like rising as a comforter because the entire time James has been like, run, 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 like, I'll stay here, I'll protect you. But as James is being killed, Kristen's like, just look at me. It's just you and me. And it's like, oh, no. It's so sad. I feel my face feels a little bit warm right now. (laughs) I feel a little bit 
this is so sad. I know. But then finally, through Kristen's screams, silence falls, and we are switching perspectives to these two young boys that we had seen earlier in the movie. They must be about like 12, 13, would you say? Something like that, yeah. Walking down the country road with their bike. I felt so disrespectful because in the beginning of the movie, when it's the 911 call, I truly thought it was a woman. I also thought it was a woman. And then I see that it's a teen boy and I'm like, oh no, I'm an (laughs) asshole. (laughs) Look, it's just the way it is. The name Jordan, it can go either way. I thought it was similar to your next that we were starting with like a cold open. Like we were going to find out that this happened to somebody else before we move on to focus on the couple in this movie. That's Mm. what I originally thought it was. But it comes right back around. We are actually coming back around. Yes. So the two boys are walking with their bikes on the side of the road and they see a truck driving toward them and then pulling up alongside them. And we know from the earlier scene that this belongs to the strangers. Dollface gets out and asks for one of their pamphlets and the pamphlet says Christian living. So we can tell they're missionaries of some degree. And the boy says, are you a sinner? And she answers, sometimes. So weird. And then is it pinup girl says to Dollface, it'll be easier next time? Yeah, after Dollface gets back in the car, that's what pinup girl says to her. Which again, we're getting the sense that this will not be the last time that they decide to terrorize some strangers because they're home. So the boys approach the house. This is a repeat of the beginning where we see them looking at the simmering truck. They approach the wide open front door. They see the rose petals on the floor, the ring box on the floor. They look around, but this time we actually see James's dead body and Kristen's body. And as one of the boys approaches Kristen's body, she wakes up, grabs his arm and screams. And that's the end of the movie. Okay, so I have some post-plot stuff. So I found this in a couple different areas. I specifically used the Screen Ran article by Michael Kennedy called The Stranger's True Story, Real Life Crimes That Inspired the Horror Movie. So as we remember, the movie opens up with text on a screen that said that this is based on a true story. So apparently this film itself is actually based on three true events. So I'm going to read what they are based on. Quote, according to novice writer and director Brian Bertino, The Stranger's True Story is primarily based on three alternate true stories. The first is the infamous series of murders committed by the Manson family in 1969, later nicknamed Helter Skelter, which were organized by Charles Manson in an ill-conceived bid to start a race war the cult leader had predicted. In particular, the home invasion and killing of actress Sharon Tate stands out as a clear marker for The Stranger's artistic direction with its gruesome knife violence, drawing close parallels to the stabbing at the Tate home. The second inspiration for The Stranger's true story is the infamous 1981 Ketty Cabin murders. Four people were killed in a small California resort town, including Sue Sharp, her son John, daughter Tina, and John's friend Dana. Disturbingly, the motive for these murders is still unknown, as the Ketty Police Department never caught the real-life killers, and the case remains unsolved. Obvious similarities abound here with the three masked assailants in The Strangers wandering off into the morning chill after massacring Kristen and James simply, quote, because they were home. Yeah, so that random aspect. And then finally, the third and final slice of real inspiration for The Strangers' true story derives from Bertino's life experience. As a child, Bertino recalls a night his parents weren't home and someone knocked on their door asking for someone who didn't live there. In a reverse of The Strangers, Bertino states he later learned that the people knocking were robbing houses in the neighborhood where no one was home instead of attacking people inside their homes. 
Still, the experience left an indelible mark on Bertino that later morphed into the terrifying portrait of random violence that the Strangers movie endeavors to depict. That's the thing about this story that is so terrifying. Because you could say a lot of things are based on a true story, but like, unless you're on the Nostromo with a cat (laughs) and an alien, you're never going to feel as scared because you know that's never going to happen to you Mm. unless you put yourself in certain circumstances. But just by virtue of being a human being that lives somewhere, there can always be someone just approaching your front door and asking to come in or Mm -hmm. asking if somebody's there and how unsettling that can be. Especially with ring cameras and nest cameras and stuff like that now, like the way that you can just see some people in the middle of the night just like walking up and standing there. I've seen TikTok montages of that and it's just fucking terrifying. And I hate and you too hate <laughs> living by ourselves. No, I hate it. I hate it. I'm not somebody who likes it very much. And even when I did, even when we did, mm-hmm. we were in large apartment complex on like the third fucking floor. I know. I loved it. I know. That's the only way I could ever feel secure. <laughs> because before that, I lived with a roommate on the ground floor and someone could have mule kicked my window mm. in and it would have been fucking over for me. And I hated every second of it. So watching this movie was just like a reminder that sometimes you really don't need the flashy mind monsters or the backstory motive to be terrifying because everybody knows what it's like to wake up in the middle of the night hearing something and not know what's causing it. That's so true. And what you said too, I'm thinking back to your comment about the play on Hello. I think this movie is built a lot on juxtaposition. We see that a lot with the score, these happy country-esque songs juxtaposed with the scary reality of a home intruder. The juxtaposition of hello as what we would imagine to be a friendly greeting, which even a friendly stranger might say to a passerby in a community, now paired with this reality of a home invasion and these killing intentions here, it also feels very vampiric. Like this idea of who do you invite into your home or who do you acknowledge at the doorstep because vampires can't be let in unless they're invited. Of course, these people certainly take liberties and enter the house at their own will, but there's something about it that feels so insidious and so vampiric. I noticed a lot in some of the movies that we've watched, especially movies where we get a lot of screen time with the killer, like Halloween. There's a sense of comfort that comes with getting to know the assailant. It's like, okay, Michael Myers, I'm getting to know you. I know your shtick. I know you're never going to jog lately. You're always going to be walking. (laughs) Like, okay, like you kind of get comfortable once you are exposed enough to the killer. But with the name of this film and the fact that we don't have a motive, like we never really know what these people are going to do, where they're going to come from. What they want. What they want. Even as a viewer, like you can never even really become comfortable with like the cadence of the film because you don't really know. You're not privileged to a backstory. You don't even see a face. So it's really scary. Not even to make it more scary, but it makes me think of a lot of like trafficking efforts that happen now where people are disarmed by having women at the forefront of a lot of things. Because again, like whether it's in a movie or it's in real life, people feel comforted at the presence of a woman. Like I remember even when I was a kid, my parents telling me, if you're lost, look for a woman with kids mm-hmm. because they're not going to hurt you. They're safe. I was told the same thing. Women are always safer than men, like that type of thing. So just the fact that the Is Tamara home is perpetrated by the young blonde woman, almost childlike. And James is obviously like, oh, no, she needs my help. Mm. Not that this person's going to end up fucking stabbing me to death later. But he immediately, even halfway through the movie when his not fiance is terrified, he's still choosing to believe that he needs to help the stranger Mm. just because she's small or whatever like that, not thinking she's part of like this larger collective that is going to harm him. 
The last thing I want to say is when I was in junior high, I went to my friend Lauren's little beach house and I was sleeping over and we were with her parents and her little sister and her sister's friend too. So it was like a full house. But for some reason, I honestly can't remember what I heard, but we were sleeping in the living room on the pullout. And I remember getting so scared that I made Lauren get her mom and come out and sleep with us in the living room. I was hearing noises outside and it turned out that the house next, we later found this out that the house next door that night was robbed. Oh no. Mm -hmm, Because it was kind of like a tiny beach house community. So people know that a lot of times people are in and out of those properties and there had been robberies there in the past. But when I read this backstory, I thought of that experience, like hearing those noises and being freaked out. And then later finding out that you're feeling freaked out was more than justified. You could tell me shit after that. I would be like, (laughs) I'm right all the fucking time. I'm justified. Well, I will say for a scaredy cat like me, it did feel validating. Exactly. Because usually I will make a big deal out of nothing. (laughs) (laughs) But that time it felt like, hey, I had a real origin story for my fear. But that was the strangers. Yeah, we did it. Let us know if you're interested in Strangers Pray at Night. I certainly am after these three. I want to know a little bit more about them, just like you said. (laughs) Yeah, I'm curious too. And especially like that final line, it'll be easier next time. Like, what's next time? What is next time? If you want to follow along with us and what we're covering in the coming months, we have many, many fun things coming your way. Definitely follow us on Instagram at The Horrors Podcast and or feel free to email us if you want to get in touch that way at thehorrorspodcast at gmail.com. And until next time, we're The Horrors. Bye. Bye.